Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. I'm Ivan, and this chapter is called The King of Rock and Soul. I figure that I can lull you into this book with a description of one of the more colorful characters I've worked with uh, before beginning to bore you with the necessary but difficult to digest biographical background information that is inherent in all memoirs. So here goes. Solomon Burke was the self-proclaimed king of rock and soul. To say that he was a character of epic proportions was an understatement. When I met him, he was already 425 pounds, an impressive number that continued to increase all the way until the end of his life, where he eventually got closer to 500 pounds. Dr. Burke started his R&B career when he was still a teenager in the mid-1950s, billed as The Boy Preacher. 55 years, 38, selling, 38 albums selling 17 million copies, 26 charting singles, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and a Grammy Award later. His life ended in an airport while he was on tour at age 70. He fathered 21 children, 14 daughters, and seven sons, and was a licensed undertaker in addition to being a performer. His exploits are legendary and well-documented, including stories about him selling sandwiches to his own band on overnight bus rides between concerts and asking for permission to sell concessions at the Apollo Theater. When the theater agreed to this, Dr. Burke sold popcorn to the patrons rather than the albums and t-shirts that the venue had expected. He was forever entrepreneurial, to say the least. Instead of going into the historical record, which I was not present for, I will concentrate on only the things I saw while performing with him about eight times over a period of about 10 years. Even in that brief amount of time, there was a lot to talk about. Starting in the mid-1990s, every time Solomon came through New York City, he would hire the Uptown Horns to be his backing band. The Uptown Horns have a great story about Solomon signing a cocktail napkin in lieu of a contract in case a gig they played with him in the late 80s that got recorded ever got released as an album. It did get released. It became a best-selling album on Rounder Records at the time. Saxophonist Arno Hecht kept and found the napkin. Uh, they presented it to the record company and ended up getting paid royalties, which helped to mitigate the indignity of not even being paid for the gig itself in the first place. Solomon had skipped out. But you'll have to ask the horns to give you the details. I wasn't there. I first met Dr. Burke at an outdoor summertime gig we did in Central Park for about 10,000 of our closest friends. It was nearly 100 degrees that day. Because of the extreme weather, the band was outfitted in matching Solomon Burke black t-shirts. But Dr. Burke performed the entire 90-minute show wearing a full gold lame suit. He did shed the ermine cape right after he came on stage, but the suit remained. I can only hope that the shiny nature of his gold lame suit somehow reflected heat rather than absorbed it. It couldn't have been comfortable for him. Also notable about that performance was the fact that our band was eight pieces, four rhythm section players and four horns. Dr. Burke had arranged for an additional six horn players to join us, giving us a 10-piece horn section. Sonically, this extended well beyond the timber of Count Basie and started to get into USC marching band territory. It was a lot of brass. Most of these extra horn players were from Los Angeles, where Dr. Burke lived. He arranged to have the musicians meet him at LAX airport to travel to New York City to perform with him in Central Park. It was a big gig that any cat would have jumped at. Once at the airport, Dr. Burke informed the horn players that their passenger van was waiting for them by the curb and that he would meet them in New York. That's right. He flew. They drove 41 hours straight to get to the gig without having been told they were traveling via interstate highway, nor given the opportunity to pack for such an adventure. The first time we met them, they were just arriving at the venue, rolling out of the epic van ride and looking all the worse for wear and tear. 
I don't remember if we had an actual rehearsal for this gig or not. I don't think so. We had some recordings to study, including the aforementioned live album with the Uptown Horns on it. I made a four-page cheat sheet for myself of his hits that would typically occur during these shows. There was no set list at a Solomon Burke concert. This was slightly problematic for my personality, which prefers to know what the heck I was going to be expected to do ahead of time so that I could prepare myself. This was even slightly more troublesome since I was the bass player. More so than any member of the band, the bass player is expected to play the correct root note of every chord on the first beat of every measure of the music. Keyboard players can listen to the bass note and then make an internal decision where they agree or disagree with the choice. They can fill in a chord voicing later in the bar on beat two or three and still sound like they know what they're doing. Guitarists and horn, and horn players can ostensibly noodle around anywhere in the key of the song and sound like they're not polluting the air. Drummers can get away with murder. They can jam through almost anything in common 4-4 time by playing a standard beat pattern and sound like a genius. But the bass player? Not so much. To further complicate the situation, Solomon didn't even call a particular song, nor did he have a musical director to count the band in. Solomon just took off singing a melody a cappella. It was your job and his backing men to figure out what song he was singing, what the chord changes were, what the rhythm was, then you had to catch up. He was already into the second or third bar of the song before the band could process the information and fall into line behind him. All that you knew for sure is that it was in the key of G. Every song he did was in the key of G. I've seen innumerable bands deliberate endlessly about their set list, not wanting to put songs adjacent that are in the same feel or the same key. Not so for Dr. Burke. Everything was in G, and it was never boring for a second. As songs would get started, Dr. Burke would also very often medley songs in, with a similar feel together. When he was finished with one song, he would launch immediately into the next, which required some keen listening skills. As I heard a new song starting, I would play it if I knew it. If I didn't know it, I would look to the keyboard player or to the guitar player to see if either one of them knew it well enough to offer some assistance with the chord changes. The system worked well for us for many shows until this one night. We were playing a 12-8 ballad medley on stage at Lincoln Center's Avery Fisher Hall for the JVC Jazz Festival, opening for Wilson Pickett, being reviewed by the New York Times, etc. My grandparents were even the, in, the, in the audience. You know, no pressure. Solomon started singing the lyrics to Ray Charles' Drown in My Own Tears. I didn't really know the chord changes. I looked at the keyboard player. The keyboard player looked at the guitar player. The guitar player looked at me. No one really had it confidently. I could feel the blood draining from my face as we tried in vain to play some generic chord pattern that would allow Solomon to do his thing for the duration of the tune. He knew immediately that we weren't with him, so he only sang a couple of lines of it and moved on to something else. We were only twisting in the wind for about 20 to 30 seconds at most, but it felt like an eternity. It didn't stop or even slow down the show. I'm quite sure most of the audience had no idea of the panic we felt for that brief moment. The show was a tremendous success, received by a thundering ovation. We bounded off stage, feeling like superheroes that night for pulling off a minor miracle. As I got to the wings, the master of ceremonies for the evening, who was the great disc jockey and record producer, Bob Porter, looked at me and said dryly, drown in my own tears, huh? Busted. I think he was the only one who knew, but I was amused that he had caught it so adeptly and commented on it. That was the only dodgy moment in that show. There was a dodgier moment uh, at the soundcheck that same day, however. It was, uh, that was one of the few times when Solomon actually showed up for soundcheck. There was no real reason for him to be there. As long as his microphone was on and loud enough in the monitors, he was good to go. That day he had a younger lady with him 
whom he wanted to have sing the Gershwin standard Summertime as part of the show. In previous concerts, he would occasionally have one of his children sing a song to give him a little break. So the fact that he wanted someone else to sing wasn't alarming. Uh, what was the beginning of the concern was the fact that she called the key, the song key as Re minor, which in Europe, in a fixed do musical system, means the key of D minor. But in America, even with very trained and seasoned musicians on stage at Lincoln Center, this meant absolutely nothing and was met with blank stares. After I made her repeat her request, not sure I had understood it the first time, I realized what was going on and called out D minor to the band. As we started to rehearse the song, it was immediately clear that she had absolutely no experience performing, <clears throat> nor any musical sensibility at all, as far as we could tell. While her pitch was fairly good, not great, she started each vocal phrase in a completely random spot. This caused us to have to literally redefine where the downbeat of each bar was every couple of measures, just to make the chord changes sound correct under her melody. The panic started to set in. This would not be an acceptable performance in a nightclub, much less on stage at Lincoln Center, but who were we to contradict the boss? Fortunately, our drummer that day, the late great Tyrone Crusher Green, had known Solomon for many years. He pulled Solomon aside after the rehearsal and had a little confidential man-to-man -man talk with him. I don't know what Crusher said to him. All I know is that the younger lady made no appearance on stage at the concert that evening, much to our relief. Since Dr. Burke was over 400 pounds, he wasn't what you would call an active dancer on stage. On his technical rider, his list of requirements included a throne to be placed center stage, where he would hold court during his performances while remaining seated. He also required two dozen long stem roses that he would hand out to the ladies in the audience. Oh, he was a charmer. One of his sons would be standing behind him as he performed as a valet or aide-de-camp, ever ready to mop the master's brow as the, enorm as the emotions of the evening poured forth. I've never before nor since witnessed a man able to enchant and beguile an entire arena full of 15,000 souls using nothing more than the power of his voice. It was a powerful voice, to be sure, but it was also the instrument of one of the greatest master showmen of all time. He knew how to work a room into a frenzy. One of his classic moves came as the song was building to an emotional, rhythmic, and dynamic peak. At the pinnacle, he would take the cowboy hat off his head and hurl it to the back of the stage in dramatic fashion. This never failed to get less than a wave of cheers of forceful enough to remind one of a Grand Slam homer in the bottom of the ninth inning at a certain crucial baseball game. The biggest climax of the evening, however, was reserved for later in the show, when at just the right moment, Solomon would actually stand up from his throne as he hit the high note at the end of the song. By contrast with him remaining seated for the entire length of the show, this move would turn the room upside down every time. It sounded like everyone's team just won the Super Bowl every time he did it. It was astounding. It was well known that as a person of such buoyant entrepreneurial spirit, Dr. Burke was not to be treated lightly in matters of business and specifically monetary exchange. To wit, it became one of our band leader's jobs to follow Solomon offstage at the end of every show. As we would play his chasing music to walk him off, waving to the crowd and blowing kisses to the audience, our band leader, Crispin, would be in lockstep right behind him. Crispin's task at this point was to follow Solomon into the dressing room and just sit with him. Whatever after-show wardrobe changes were necessary and whatever backstage meet and greet were incidental, Crispin's focus was to make sure that Solomon didn't leave the building before paying the band in cash. 
While this seemed a bit overcautious, there had been unfortunate precedent for this in years past. Solomon had come up on the Chitlin circuit. He was a true CC writer. You might not have known the, the origin of that song title. Well, there it is. The ethos of the Chitlin circuit was to try to get yours before someone else absconded with it. Legion are the tales of misappropriation of funds. Artists routinely got screwed and might be forced to pass the savings along to the next person in line. It wasn't usually personal, business was business. Payola was also the way of things got done back in the day when it came to, to paying money for getting records played on the radio. It was the business model that the entire industry operated before, during, and after it was made officially illegal by federal law in 1960. At one concert in the 1990s in Brooklyn, the master of ceremonies announcing the show was the dean of New York Broadcasting, the late great Hal Jackson. Mr. Jackson had been a DJ since 1939 in Washington, D.C., and was on the air in New York City from 1954 until his death in 2012 at the age of 96. He was a legend, an institution. Mr. Jackson went way back with Solomon Brick to the start of his own career, recording career in 1955. They knew each other for close to 50 years and respected each other. After Mr. Jackson and Al Solomon, with the band playing the overture, Dr. Burke took the stage. As he sat on his throne, he whispered something to his son slash valet who was at his side. Then he told the band to break it down. As we were playing at an underscore volume, Solomon made a lengthy speech to the audience about how great Mr. Jackson was and how he had been crucial in the development of Solomon's career. Without the airplay Mr. Jackson had given him in New York, none of this would ever have happened, etc., etc. We weren't listening that closely to what Solomon was saying because we were distracted by the actions of his son at the moment. Um, after Solomon whispered in his ear, his son turned around with his back to the audience, but in full view of us in the band. Out of his white tuxedo jacket pocket, he pulled a bank envelope. Out of the envelope, he counted one, two, three, four, five crisp new $100 bills. The Benjamins, if you will. He returned the envelope to his jacket pocket, ostensibly with less of our band salary in it than it had just had seconds ago, but that was only of mild concern to us at this point. He folded the $500 and placed it into his dad's hand out of sight of the audience. As Solomon was making his heartfelt speech about Mr. Jackson, he shook hands with Mr. Jackson with the cash in his palm, the way you would tip a maitre d' to get a good table at a fancy restaurant. This is a move we call the happy handshake. Mind you, this was on stage in front of thousands of people. Mr. Jackson felt the paper in his hand, looked down to see what it was, and literally did a double take. A sound effect klaxon of auga would have gone well at this moment. He immediately started saying, oh, no, 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 off the microphone where no one was able to hear him over the band playing and Solomon giving his speech over the PA. He tried valiantly to hand the money back to Solomon, who was having none of it. Without creating a scene or public embarrassment, his only course of action was to wave at the crowd and walk off stage. All of us in the band were watching this happen with our mouths open. Now that's old school. We played with Solomon many times and loved it every time. Once we played as a surprise at Amit and Mika Erdogan's 40th wedding anniversary party in the penthouse ballroom of the swanky Pierre Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. The all-star guest list included Mick Jagger, Pete Jennings, Bette Midler, other stars, wealthy socialites, and people generally in vogue. Amit was the founder of Atlantic Records and had signed Solomon to the label in 1961. Almost all of Solomon's charting hits were on Atlantic between 61 and 69 when he left for Bell Records. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to sneak a 425-pound man plus an eight-piece R&B band into anywhere? 
It's not easy, I can assure you. One tends to make quite an entrance with that much hardware in one's arsenal. Even with the slow reveal, it was still a surprise performance to a small but well-heeled crowd. Though never known as a performer of any sort, Ahmed Erdogan actually ended up sitting in with us and trading lines of a blues with Solomon. That's why I feel comfortable in, in putting Ahmed's name on my, my resume. I actually played with him. The last time I saw Solomon was in London in 2007. I hadn't played with him in about six years. We were both at a gig that was the after party of the Ahmed Erdogan tribute concert at the O2 Arena after Ahmed passed away. The concert was famous for reuniting Led Zeppelin for the first time in 20 years. They released a live concert film and album from this gig called Celebration Day. It was a star-studded, beyond star-studded event. <clears throat> People had paid the highest scalp ticket prices in history and traveled from around the world to see this legendary gig. Instead of the 20,000-seat arena, we were playing the after-party in the adjacent theater called the Indigo that seated a measly 2,350 people. The bill for this concert was Solomon Burke, Percy Sledge, Benny King, and Sam Moore, all former Atlantic Records artists. That night turned out to be the last time I saw Percy Sledge as well. <coughs> I was there music directing for Sam Moore. The house band was Bill Wyman's Kings of Rhythm featuring Albert Lee on guitar, and Chris Stanton on keyboards, who played at Woodstock with Joe Cocker's Grease Band. I had to kick Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones off the bass so I could conduct the band. No, I was not worthy. Yeah, it was a heavy night. As such, the credentials one needed to travel freely backstage at the arena were very specific and very highly sought after. Security was extremely tight. For instance, Paul Rogers from Bad Company was scheduled to sing a song with Sam Moore on his set. But as showtime was nearing, he was nowhere to be found. <clears throat> it turned out that initially, Paul didn't have the right laminated pass to get backstage where we were. He was one of the most famous rock stars in England, unable to get backstage to do his own gig. Eventually, he made it back in time for the set, but that was, that was nuts. Earlier in the evening, I decided to see if my laminate pass would get me into the main arena to see part of Led Zeppelin's set, not really believing that it would. After all, I was the hired help for the after party, not even part of the main event. Yet off I went to find out. I passed checkpoint after checkpoint with my laminate hanging around my neck. I didn't ask anyone's permission. I just walked purposefully by a, a number of different security guards who were all eyeing my pass. I passed yet another guard and went through a set of double doors. To my complete astonishment, I found myself inside the main arena, standing in a walkway about 25 feet from John Paul Jones's butt as he sat at the organ on stage playing with the almighty Led Zeppelin. It was shock and awe. But there's, there's no other way to describe it. I didn't know how I had managed to get to where I was, but I knew one thing. However I did manage it, I wasn't going to move on from that spot because I didn't think I could repeat the entry. After only a few minutes of enjoying the show, I felt a tap on my shoulder. Oh boy, I thought to myself, the jig is up. I knew I wasn't supposed to be there, and now someone else seemed to know it too. I tried to play innocent and inquire over the concert volume what the problem was. The security guard said, you can't stand here. He proceeded to push me through a barricade out of the walkway. He pushed me about 10 feet closer to the stage. I was then only about 15 feet from John Paul Jones's butt. I apologized to the security guard and was left to watch the show undisturbed from very close to the stage. There was yet one more layer of security. There was a mountain of a human being standing on the side of the actual stage facing outward. I assume if your name wasn't Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, or Jason Bonham, you weren't going to get past that guy. 
The after-party gig started about 1 a.m. and went quite late. It was a packed house until the very end. Backstage, I was able to speak to Solomon Burke. We reminisced about a few of our exploits. I wasn't playing with him that evening. Uh, I explained to him that I was there conducting for Sam Moore. Solomon said to me a few times in succession, thank you for being here for Sam. Thank you, thank you. It was touching and also a little disturbing at the same time. It was disturbing because of the intensity of his inflection and the number of times he kept repeating the same thing. It was touching because I think he was giving voice to the gratitude he felt for having people help him musically through his career. But then it was disturbing again because he wasn't thanking me for playing for him and Sam wasn't thanking me for playing for, with him, although he has other times. Solomon was thanking me on behalf of Sam using the words he probably felt needed to be said yet weren't being said. It was an odd yet touching exchange, somehow fitting for our last meeting. He passed away three years later on a flight to Amsterdam where he was scheduled to perform. He rode the Chitlin circuit right up to the very end.